Hey, everybody, and welcome to ARE Live. I'm Chris Hopstock, Architect Education Specialist here at Black Spectacles and your host for ARE Live. Today, we're going to be joined by two guest experts, Emily Eppel and Haley Pugh, who will be walking through firm financial documents and how to evaluate the financial health of a firm. If you think of any questions you'd like to ask Emily or Haley during the Q&A, make sure to post them in our ARE community as the webinar chat isn't enabled today. Go to community.blackspectacles.com and post your questions or comments on the Firm Financial Documents episode page. Everyone who posts in our community thread today will be entered to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, so head over and just say hello. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to see if you won. Our next ARE Live will be April 20th, 2023, where we'll discuss sustainable design and how sustainability practices apply to the ARE. You can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up or check out this episode's community page for the registration link. To learn more about the study materials that Black Spectacles offers or to watch this episode again later, go to go.blackspectacles.com. Although all of our episodes are available in both video and podcast audio formats after the broadcast, we'll be sharing our screen during today's live, so we recommend watching the webinar to better see how we'll work through the material. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's guests, Emily Eppel and Haley Pugh. Emily is a practicing architect in New York City who's in the process of starting her own firm, and Haley is an architect with Nelson Worldwide. They're also both Black Spectacles virtual workshop instructors. So welcome, Emily and Haley. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, glad to have you. So today's episode is structured like a case study. Um, we're going to start by reading the scenario and getting sort of an overall feel for what we're going to be talking about. And just a reminder, we're sharing this today in um, in Bluebeam, so some of the features won't look exactly like you will see on the ARE. For example, um, we're not going to be clicking through tabs to see any of the resources that you would have for the case study. They're embedded in this presentation, and we won't be using the calculator and the whiteboard that you would use on the actual ARE. Uh, we're just gonna write on the on the PDF itself and, and use um, the computer's calculator. So keep that in mind uh, as we're going through this. Um, but with that said, Emily, why don't you take it away and set us up for success on this case study? Yeah, sounds good. We'll get started. Haley, Emily, and Chris are creating a new architecture firm together. Their experience and qualifications are listed below. Haley is a Missouri and Louisiana registered architect with experience on commercial projects, historic rehabilitation, and coastal sustainability. Emily is an Illinois and Indiana registered architect with workplace and residential experience, currently working and living in New York and seeking license reciprocity there. Chris is a New York registered architect with experience in mixed use and residential projects in the New York metropolitan area. The team wants to primarily pursue projects that match their skill set, respond to RFPs in order to gain new projects, and plans to hire employees in their first year in order to round out the team's capabilities. The three architects have a network of preferred consultants in their area, and based on their past experience, they expect consultant costs to amount to 25% of the firm's billings. So this is just the scenario that's gonna get us set up for the rest of the questions today. Um, and we might have to refer back to it a few times. 
Yeah, I, I definitely recommend um, when you when you get to the case studies, whether you do them in the beginning or the end of your exam, it's your choice. And those are, there's there's different strategies and, and pros and cons of each. Um, but I would I would recommend reading that. And for every piece of information you're given, um, try to try to just remember it. And when you when you start going through the questions, think back to what information in that scenario might apply to the question. I think. Um, people are super used to looking through the resources available for the case studies, but I, I feel like the scenario often gets uh, forgotten about, and there's definitely some nuggets of information in there that are going to be applicable. And um, I'll also point out that this is a fake scenario. Uh, Emily Haley and I are not starting firm, but I just thought it'd be a fun thing to, uh, to talk about and pretend for today. So um, with that said, Emily, take us away with question one. Yeah, sounds good. All right. The team is preparing their business plan so that the new firm has a set of guiding principles and business strategies during their early years. Which of the following abridged executive summaries is most appropriate for the firm? So we have A, the firm will focus on residential projects in the New York metropolitan area, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut that are privately funded. B, the firm will focus on commercial projects in Missouri and residential projects in New York during their early years, and then expand to different project typologies in those jurisdictions as they gain experience. C, the firm will submit RFP responses to residential and commercial RFPs in a variety of jurisdictions and hire additional registered architects to take responsible control of each project. D, the firm will focus on residential, commercial, and workplace projects in New Jersey where coastal resiliency is a primary consideration. So to get started with answering this question, I think it's helpful just to start from the top, read them again, um, and see if we can eliminate any, um, if any have some red flags that we know they're gonna be wrong for sure, or if some are maybes, and then we can come back to them. So let's get started with A again. The firm will focus on residential projects in the New York metropolitan area, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut that are privately funded. So for A, I'm leaning towards that this is not the correct answer, and that's strictly because of its mention of New Jersey and Connecticut. So between the three of us, Chris Haley and I, we are already licensed in five jurisdictions, um, which is, it's that's a fair amount for a new firm just starting out. Um, and New Jersey and Connecticut are not included in those five. So it doesn't make sense for us to specifically focus on projects in those two states where none of us are currently licensed. So I would go ahead and eliminate A as a possible option. And on the exam, you can use that strike through function just so you clearly mark it out of your head um, and know that you don't need it. Thank you, Haley. Um, so let's go to B next. The firm will focus on commercial projects in Missouri and residential projects in New York during their early years, and then expand to different project typologies in those jurisdictions as they gain experience. So we know that Haley has experience with commercial projects and is licensed in Missouri, so that sounds good. Um, and we know that um, Emily, myself, and Chris both have experience with residential projects, um, and we are both working in New York with Chris being licensed there and um, with Emily soon to be licensed there. Um, so, so far, everything in B is sounding um, like it could be the correct answer, but we do have C and D to look through. So just to have the confidence, um, I'm gonna go ahead and review C and D as well and see if we can um, for sure mark those off. Because we are always looking for the best answer. Um, sometimes you might 
find that a couple of the answers seem like they could work. So we're always looking for the best. So I want to go ahead and see um, if C or D happen to be better options. So C, the firm will submit RFP responses to residential and commercial RFPs in a variety of jurisdictions and hire additional registered architects to take responsible control of each project. So the first part of this option sounds okay. Residential commercial, that's where um, we already have experience. Um, so that sounds good, but the variety of jurisdictions is a little vague. And then the fact that it's followed up with and hire additional registered architects to take control of those projects makes it seem like those would be jurisdictions outside of where we're already licensed. So that goes back to my reasoning with A, we're already, licensed and registered in five states. I don't know why at the beginning of our business we would decide to look outside of those five states and need to hire someone else. Since we're not licensed outside of those five states, then we would have to hire someone else to do that work. So that doesn't seem like a super great option for our first you know, couple of years in the firm. So see, we can mark that off. Next we have D. The firm will focus on residential, commercial, and workplace projects in New Jersey, where coastal resiliency is a primary consideration. Again, residential and commercial sounds good. Um, workplace, um, if you think back to the scenario, it did say, I have some experience in workplace. So you're like, maybe that's good too. But then it says projects in New Jersey. And again, we're not licensed in New Jersey. Um, so even though it's focusing on coastal resiliency, that might go well with um, some of Haley's experience, no one's licensed in New Jersey. So I don't think it makes the most sense. So I would go back to say that B is our best option. The firm will focus on commercial projects in Missouri and residential projects in New York during their early years and then expand to different typologies in those jurisdictions as they gain experience. Thanks, Emily, that was great. Yeah, these, these questions about um, sort of asking what you should do in a certain business situation, I, I understand that they can be frustrating because I think in reality, different people might do different things in, in different business situations. Um, when you see questions like this on the ARE, try to think about um, some of the more tangible things that are being talked about here. In this in this question, you've, you've got to understand that if, if people want to be the architect of record in a specific jurisdiction, they need to be licensed there. Um, that's a really important tangible piece of information that makes a few of these answers incorrect. Um, and, and think about what the references would, would say about the situation. So um, the, the, the ARE references specifically, the Architect's Handbook of Professional Practice talks about business plans and, and some general things about um, maybe where you would um, seek what types of projects you would seek based on your experience. It's it's important to realize that the the references available talk about starting out with projects that you're uh, already experienced in. Don't you know if you have all residential experience, don't start working on healthcare projects, for example. That's probably not a good strategy. So always try to tie the answers back to what's what's available in the resources because that's what the questions are ultimately based on. So with that said, let's move on to a finance question and Haley can take it away. Thanks, Chris. All right, let's uh, hop right in. So um, I like to do is I like to read the question first and then go back and um, read all the information that goes along with it. So the big question we're trying to ask here is, what is the firm's projected break even rate? So let's keep that in our minds while we go through the, the bulk of the question. 
So the team is determining what their overhead expenses will be for their first year so they can complete their profit plan. They've discussed the following costs that they expect to have during year one. Benefits and insurance at $120,000. The office lease $40,000 for co-working spaces. Accounting and bookkeeping at 25 grand. Legal at 35 grand. Marketing at 75. And then a bad debt allowance of $15,000 and discretionary bonuses right at 50,000. So the firm will also hire an administrative assistant with a projected salary of $75,000. What's the firm's projected break-even rate? All right, so I know this and you probably don't, but on the next page, I also have um, some information here <laughs> that uh, talks about um, just sort of the utilization rates of um, a variety of different employees along with their total labor, direct labor and indirect labor. So this is gonna come in handy here in a second, but for now, let's, let's go back up to um, the main question. So the question is, what is the firm's projected break-even rate? And so I'm gonna just kind of use the white space in this slide to sort of work out my thoughts on this so you can kind of follow along. Um, it might get a little bit messy here, but we'll do our best. So if we're thinking about what break-even rate is, I know that probably a good way to think about break-even rate is break-even rate is gonna be equal to our overhead rate plus one. So that's just a basic um, formula there. But now I need to know what my overhead rate is. So I think it's good to back up and try to figure out what our overhead rate is. So I know that my overhead rate is going to be equal to um, my indirect expenses, so all of them. And that's going to be over our direct labor. All right. So our indirect expenses are going to be made up of everything that's an expense in the office, including the indirect portions of our labor. So I know we're gonna need to know direct labor here in a minute, and I'm gonna need to know the indirect portions of our labor. So what I'm gonna do really quick is hop over to the next slide and get these numbers. So our direct labor for the firm is gonna be $480,250 for our designers and principals, and then the indirect labor is gonna be 149750 so I've got those scribbled down, but I'm gonna go put them on the, on the previous slide so that we can have them all in one spot. All right, so, so we know that their direct labor is gonna be equal to $480,250, and our indirect labor is going to be equal to $149,000, 750. So now we have pretty much all the information we need from the next slide to sort of work out our math on this slide without having to flip around too much. So we know our break-even rate is overhead rate plus one. Our overhead rate is going to be all of our indirect expenses over direct labor, and then we've got a couple numbers pulled over. So let's get started with some calculations. All right, so I think since we know our direct labor and we're trying to calculate our overhead rate before we plug it into our break-even rate, we need to figure out what our indirect expenses are. So our indirect expenses are going to be basically everything we're paying for to keep the office running in addition to the indirect portion of our labor. So let's go through some of these line items and figure out what makes sense to uh, qualify as our indirect expenses. So we've got benefits and insurance at $120,000, which absolutely makes sense 
um, to be included in our indirect expenses. So let's go ahead and get that out. Then office lease, that's another one that makes a whole lot of sense. So let's get that one added. Then we've got accounting and bookkeeping, another great indirect expense to keep our office running. Let's see, legal, another good one. So that's another $35,000 in this sum. Marketing, 75. Debt allowance, oh, bad debt allowance doesn't seem like it's really necessarily something that counts as an indirect expense. This sounds like something that is outside of what we should be picking up here. So I'm gonna leave that one off for now. Um, and sometimes you'll find that in questions where they give you um, pieces of information that don't quite fit the bill for what you're looking for. And this is one of those situations where maybe that $15,000 is best left out of our calculation for indirect expenses. So we're gonna skip it. And we're gonna go down to the discretionary bonuses because that's also a really good um, indirect expense. So we've got that, and now we have an administrative assistant with a projected salary of $75,000. So this individual um, is not gonna have any billable time to projects, so their entire salary is gonna be an indirect expense. So we're gonna go ahead and add their entire salary to the calculation of the indirect expenses. And as our last item, we're gonna take the indirect portion of the salaries of our um, designers and principals and add that into our indirect expenses as well. So that puts us at 149,750. And now we've got a whole lot of numbers to add together. So let's take a second and do that. And we will get our number for our total indirect expenses that we can plug into our overhead rate. I've got my little calculator here. And if you'll bear with me, I'm gonna plug in some of these numbers. So 120,000 plus 40,000 plus 25,000, plus 35,000, plus 75,000, plus 50,000, plus another 75,000, plus the indirect portion of the salaries, which is 149750. And so that gives us, oh gosh, it, okay, it's 569.750. I'm going to drag this to another screen, but we're going to remember that number. So what we're going to put here is we're going to say our indirect expenses are going to be equal to this number, which is 569.750. Okay, so we know what our indirect expenses are, and we can, and we know what our direct labor is. That's right here. So let's go ahead and calculate our overhead rate since we have all the numbers we need for that. Okay, so we're going to take our indirect expenses, which is this number, and we're going to put that over our direct labor, which is this number. All right, so I'm going to bring my calculator over and we're going to calculate this real quick. So we already have our 569.750, and so we're just going to divide that by our direct labor number, which is 480250. And that's going to give us about 1.19 as our overhead rate. And if you've ever joined me on my virtual workshops, um, I'm about to do the easiest math you'll do all day. Break even rate is equal to your overhead rate plus one. So our break even rate is, is equal to 1.19 plus one which is equal to 
1.19. Great, thanks for going over that with us. I think uh, if, if anyone's worried about rounding in this one, there was some rounding to find the overhead rate, uh, a question like this on the actual ARI or on any of our practice exams would provide you with some rounding information. Um, also traditionally overhead rates and all of these um, firm financial metrics are rounded to the hundredth. So that's the, the standard there and that's why Haley rounded this to 1.19 and then 2.19. Another thing I'll say about this one is that I could I could imagine if this was on a, a practice exam or the real ARI that all of the information that's bulleted there might be provided in a reference that you would have to go seek. Um, so this type of a question might be something where you're you're pulling from a list of expenses from one resource and then you've got the um, the next slide which was actually the top section of a profit plan in another resource and you're you're um, you're pulling information from multiple resources to come up with an answer uh, I think a last thing I'll say about this one is that all of these expenses here are listed they come from a profit and loss statement uh, so if you're if to answer a question like this, you really should be comfortable with what a profit and loss statement looks like and what types of expenses are categorized in which places. Everything here is an indirect expense, just like Haley said, except bad debt allowance is actually included in the miscellaneous revenue and expense section, which is on the very bottom of a PL statement traditionally. That's why we're not including it as part of the overhead. Um, and for those that don't know, bad debt allowance is simply an allowance that you would make for the rare scenario where you submit an invoice to somebody and it doesn't get paid. That happens and you've got to account for that in your firm finances uh, for that very small portion of the time that that happens. So with that said, let's move on to question three and Emily's going to take this one. Thanks, Chris. All right, so we have the team is discussing a first new hire for their firm and wants to employ an architect who can complement their range of experience and free up some of the principal's time so they can respond to more RFPs. The firm is committed to working on a relatively equal percentage of projects in Missouri and New York. In addition to the above, the principals have discussed the following criteria. Two to five years of experience desired, BIM proficient, licensure not required, if not licensed, candidates should be on the path to licensure, the team has reviewed resumes and created a list of the four most promising candidates, all of whom provided sample BIM projects in their portfolios. Which of the following candidates makes the most sense for the firm to hire? So we have option A, project architect licensed in Missouri with 10 years of experience on multiple project types. B, project manager with four years of experience who is licensed in Indiana, experienced in commercial and workplace projects in the Midwest. C, a designer with two years of experience on commercial and historic preservation projects currently seeking licensure. D, a draftsperson with four years of experience on residential projects currently seeking licensure in New York. So again, I think the best way to go about answering this question is just to go back from the beginning, start with A and try to eliminate each option one by one to figure out what is the best option. I also just want to point out that I think the key portion of this new scenario um, is the relatively equal percentage of projects in Missouri and New York. So if this was the real exam, I'd probably use the highlight function and I would highlight that area um, up there in that scenario above the relatively equal percentage of projects in Missouri and New York, um, just so it's 
right there, um, easy for us to see and easy for us to refer back to as we are reviewing the options. So let's start with A, project architect licensed in Missouri with 10 years of experience on multiple project types. So licensed in Missouri seems great because we wanna work on projects in Missouri and New York, so that seems like a great option. And then it goes on to say with 10 years of experience on multiple project types. So the 10 years is obviously not within two to five years of experience, but it does say two to five years of experience desired. So that's enough to make me kind of question if this one um, should be crossed off or not. So it's one I'm gonna come back to, but for now, um, I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, so I'm gonna move on to B. So next we have project manager with four years of experience who's licensed in Indiana, experienced in commercial and workplace projects in the Midwest. So four years of experience, that's right within the two to five years that we desire, so that's great. Um, and they're licensed in Indiana. So this one might throw some people off because they might think back to the very beginning scenario um, where it was mentioned that Emily, that I am licensed in Indiana as well. You need to think about the information that is being given to you currently. So since we talked about that very original scenario, we have um, gotten more information since then, and we have decided that we're focusing mostly on projects in Missouri and New York. Um, from question one, we decided that as well. So them being licensed in Indiana isn't really helping what our new firm mission is. Um, so I think I would probably go ahead and cross off B as an incorrect answer. Next we have C, a designer with two years of experience on commercial and historic preservation projects currently seeking licensure. So they're seeking licensure, which is one of the things we wanted. So that's good. Commercial um, work aligns with Haley's experience. So that's good. Um, and two years of experience falls within that two to five years. So that all sounds good. It doesn't really mention where they have experience, like what states um, or where they're currently located. So that's enough to make me question it as well. So I'm gonna leave this one as is for now and we'll come back to it. Next we have D, draftsperson with four years of experience on residential projects, currently seeking licensure in New York. So four years is great, it's within the two to five, residential um, aligns with what Chris and I do, and seeking licensure in New York would also be with um, Chris and I, but that's the problem here. Um, if we go back to what we highlighted above, we're looking to have equal percentages of projects in Missouri and New York. If we hire this drafts person, then we have three um, employees working in the New York area on residential projects and only Haley working in Missouri on commercial projects. So that's not giving us the equal percentage that we said we were looking for. So we can go ahead and eliminate D. That is not the correct answer. So that leaves us with A and C. So let's go back to A, project architect license in Missouri with 10 years of experience on multiple project types versus C, a designer with two years of experience on commercial and historic preservation projects currently seeking licensure. And I think what this really comes down to is which one has something that is blatantly different from what we're asking for. And that would be A, it is um, stated that they have 10 years of experience and we're looking for two to five years of experience. Um, and the reason why this matters is because years of experience usually translate to salary. So if we're looking for someone with two to five years of experience, we're probably budgeting for someone who is gonna be paid for their two to five years of experience. So we wouldn't necessarily have the budget to hire someone who has 10 years of experience. So even though C was a little more vague, 
they have two years of experience. They have experience with commercial like Haley. So that lends me to believe since a location is not listed that we could put them on commercial projects in Missouri with Haley. And that would have us um, balanced between Missouri and New York. So C is the best option in this case. Yeah, this is another one of those uh, sort of soft skill questions like the first question that we looked at here where different people in the real world might make a different decision. You you might be saying to yourself, uh, project architect with 10 years of experience on multiple project types, that sounds like a great asset for a firm. Um, if you've, if you've uh, looked at any job postings recently, you can check some out on spectacular.design. Um, you, you'll, you'll see that that's a really in, uh, in demand level of experience right now and, and position. So you might be saying that, that that sounds great, but you've got to go back and look at the question and see that, um, that choice specifically conflicts with exactly what we're looking for here. And on the ARE, at least, that should be a red flag for you and you shouldn't select that. I understand in real life, you know, you, your firm, a firm might be looking for somebody with two to five years experience and decide to hire someone with seven or 10 uh, because they're a great person and otherwise fit the bill. But on the ARE, we're going to go with strict requirements here. And um, that's how you should answer these types of questions. So with that said, we're going to jump back to finances, I believe. Yep, and Haley's going to take this one away. All right, so new question here, building on our previous uh, finance question. So let's just skip down and look at what they're asking us, and then we can read what the big question is. So what is the billable rate for principal A round to the nearest $5? All right, so we know we're going to be looking at a billable rate and um, rounding it, perfect. So the question uh, in bigger terms expects to be able to earn $1,800,000 in total during their first year of operations. Okay, so what's so great about this question is something that you would see in a case study where you're really gonna have to build off of the information that you had previously. So if you'll bear with me, I'm gonna have to go back to a, a few previous slides here in just a second. But um, I really want to talk to you about how my brain is starting to think about this before we start looking at real numbers. So we need to figure out what the billable rate for principal A is. Um, and so, you know, based on what we've seen previously with information, we know what his, you know, direct labor is, indirect labor, salary. We understand where his time is going and where his um where the proportions of his salary are going, but what we really need to understand is um, things like how much profit the company is making and um, net multiplier and a couple things like that that go into understanding sort of the <laughs> what a billable rate is, okay? And so real quickly, the next page um, is showing us sort of the same profit plan that we saw earlier. So we see principal A, we see the direct labor, we see the indirect labor, um, for that individual, we see the overall firm's direct labor and indirect labor, but there are a couple more pieces of information we need. So um, very, very quickly, uh, I just want to write down a couple things that I'm thinking when I first see this of information that I need versus information that I have and just sort of how we go about pulling that out of all the numbers that we've received so far. So I'm going to kind of work backwards. So I'm going to kind of say what I'm thinking and then we'll move forwards to get our numbers. So in order to get a billable rate, I know that that's going to be our hourly rate 
and that's going to be um, times whatever our net multiplier is. And I'm putting this in caps um, because that's something we need to figure out because it's a pretty important thing and that'll get us our, our billable rate. All right. And so in order to get our net multiplier, we need to figure out how much profit we're making. And so, and, and we'll manipulate that a little bit, but I think what really matters right now is that we need to figure out how much profit the, this uh, our company is making. So I'm gonna say that our profit is going to be equal to our net operating revenue, which we'll talk about here in just a second. And from that, you subtract your direct expenses. And from that, you also subtract your indirect expenses. So it's basically after everyone's been paid that needs to be paid, um, we are going to end up with how much money the company made, and that's going to be our profit. All right, so we've got a net multiplier here that we need to figure out, and we'll get to figure that out based on what we can um, get from our profit. Uh, we need to figure out what our net operating revenue is, and so that's another good place we can start because we can figure out at this point direct expenses and indirect expenses because we've kind of done that previously, but we need to know what net operating revenue is. So I'm just kind of, you know, rounding up all the things that I need to figure out at this point. So our net operating revenue, um, kind of by definition, right, is equal to um, everything that we've billed, so our total billings. And we're gonna subtract out anything that we owe to our consultants. So it's everything that we build minus whatever it is that needs to go out to everyone else. And that's gonna be the money that we have to play with that goes to cover our expenses. And then anything taken away from our expenses is gonna to lead to our profit, right? So these are sort of the things we need to figure out to finally figure out what our net multiplier is. So it's it's a roundabout way of sorting of sort of getting these numbers. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to start figuring out how all these work together. All right. So where I think the best place to start, because it's given in our question, is starting with the billings and how that um, works with our net operating revenue. So let's start there. So our net operating revenue is going to be equal to our total billing. Um, which is the $1.8 million number minus our consultants. And so this was a piece of information that was given way long ago. And so if you'll bear with me, I'm going to go back and show you this part. So this is way back on the first slide where we introduced this information. So they expect consultant costs to amount to 25% of the firm's billings. So we're actually gonna take this little piece of information from way back in the question, and we're gonna apply it now to the question we're working on. So if we know that consultants are gonna account for 25% of our billings, we know that what we're gonna be able to keep is gonna be 75% of the building, billings. So I think the easiest way to go about this is just to take 75% uh, of this and we're gonna equal to what our net operating revenue is. So if we pull over our calculator and we work this out, we're gonna get 1,350,000. So let's go ahead and put that there. So we've got our net operating revenue, fantastic. So now that we've got that, um, I think we can come over here and figure out what our profit is. So our profit is gonna be equal to our net operating revenue minus our direct expenses and our indirect expenses. So this again is going to be sort of me moving around a bit. Uh, 
in the slides because we calculated all this previously, right? So our direct expenses, um, we had calculated as our direct labor, right? Which is this $480,250 number. And our total indirect expenses are this $569,750 number. So we've already, we've already figured this out on a previous problem. So what we're gonna do is we're just gonna go to our current problem. We're gonna plug in these numbers. So profits equal to net operating revenue minus our direct expenses. Like I said, it kind, of, it kind of might have to do a little bit of moving around, but you'll get it. And then our indirect expenses. And so if you work all that out, it kind of equals a sort of beautiful number. Um, you can put it in your calculator, but I'm going to save a little bit of time right here. That equals $300,000. So we know that the that we've earned $300,000 in profit during our first year of operations. Well, fantastic. We've got our profit, but what does that really mean as far as like thinking about it compared to what we're making per hour, what we're billing per hour? And so this is where it gets kind of interesting and in having to know like a deep understanding of how these numbers work. And so what we're wanting to do is in order to figure out our net multiplier, because we already know our break-even rate from earlier, we really need to figure out the amount per labor hour that we're gonna go above the break-even rate. So this is how much we made all year in terms of um, profit, but now we need to see how that equates to um, our direct labor so that we can apply that directly to how much we went over per billable hour to make money. So. I hope that makes sense. So this is the way I'm going to think about it. So I'm going to take the total profit for the whole year and I'm going to put that over our direct labor. And if I do that, it's going to equal to the amount per labor hour that we made money, right? It's above the break-even rate. So this is how much we're making above zero, which is exactly what profit is. So we're going to add this number to our break-even rate and we're going to end up with our net multiplier. All right. So what we're going to do, just like it says here, we're going to take our profit, which for the year was $300,000, and we're going to divide that by our direct labor, which was the $480,250. And if we take that and we put it into our calculator, which I'll do for you very quickly, we're going to equal with about 0.62. And so this is the amount per labor hour that we made money. And so the idea is that a break-even rate is what will get you to zero and profit is what gets you above zero. And all of this is in terms of direct labor hours. So those are, you can manipulate them together, right? And so if we take the overhead rate, which was the 1.19 from the previous slides, we add it to one to get our break-even rate. And then we add how much profit we made per billable labor hour as 0.62. That's going to put us at 2.81. And this is, in fact, our net multiplier. Okay, so now we have our net multiplier. And um, the way that the net multiplier works as up here is you multiply it times an hourly rate, and then that's going to give you your billable rate. And so for principle A, we know how much they make per hour because over here it says that they make $72 per hour. So what we can do is we can say $72 per hour times our net multiplier, which is 2.81, and then that will give us what their billable rate is. So 72 times 
is equal to 20232. And so we're rounding this to the nearest $5. And so that's going to give us rounded up at 200. Oh, that's a percent at uh, $205 per hour. Yeah, I love how you went through this question and started by uh, using a formula that you know for the thing that we're looking for, a billable rate, and that allows you to figure out what you need to calculate in this question, the net multiplier, and then uh, you can you can kind of use the formula that you know for that to figure out what else you need to find to answer this question and so on and so forth. So uh, another thing I love about this question is that it's the shortest question here. It's just two lines, but it, it really requires a lot of finding information and a, a good amount of calculation. So uh, question length doesn't necessarily translate 100% to how long you're going to spend on the question. Uh, so just remember that. And um, I think you'd have a really hard time answering this question if you're not super comfortable with the interrelation of all of these metrics and and how um, how to calculate certain things. A lot of this stuff comes from a profit plan document, which uh, is is the, the document that you would use at the end of each year to calculate all of these multipliers and figure out your billable rates. So I think if you're going into the PCM exam, you need to be super familiar with um, a, the four firm financial documents that are that are definitely covered on the exam, and um, how how all the numbers sort of work with each other to arrive at uh, different numbers that you would use uh, billable rates, for example. I I found personally that one of the one of the good ways to get comfortable with that is to make my own spreadsheet of all this stuff. I think if you have to enter all the formulas yourself. You'll, you'll really internalize how the numbers inter interact with each other. So you could maybe give that a try uh, if, you're, if you're struggling with remembering what all of these terms and formulas mean. All right, we're going to jump on to another financial question. So Haley's going to take that one as well. Super fun. So this one is going to be just a little bit different um, because we have a whole lot of uh, options here that we're going to go through. So let me just start off with the question, right? So which of the following is true about the current financial status of the firm? Check the four that apply. Okay, so we've got a lot of answers here. Uh, a, the firm missed their billing target by 50,000 in the first quarter. B, designer A's utilization rate is lower than projected. C, the firm has spent more on direct labor in March than they did on average in the previous months. D, the firm is billing more in March than they did on average in the previous months. E, consultant costs are lower than anticipated. And F, the firm's total labor cost is higher than expected for the first quarter. So back at the top, the firm is reviewing their profit loss statement at the end of March in their first year of operations. And so now we're trying to figure out which of these are actually accurate um, now that we're reviewing the profit loss statement. So I think it's after, yeah. So we have the profit loss statement here. And so what we're gonna do is just answer, we're gonna review and see if these answers make sense. So answer A, the firm missed their billing target by $50,000 in the first quarter. So let's let's look at what their billing target was. So fees billed right here, um, they billed 165,000 year to date and year to date budget. So it kind of does look like they missed it by exactly $50,000 because if they're expecting 425, they've only billed 375. That looks like a good answer to me. So I'm going to go ahead and say, 
yeah, that, that looks like a good one. All right, so B is the next one. Designer A's utilization rate is lower than projected. All right, so let's check out designer A and what they're up to. All right, so designer A is here at 7,500. Year to date is 25,000 and the year to date budget was 21,375. So to me, it kind of looks like they're doing better than expected. So I don't think that is a good answer. So I'm gonna go ahead and mark out B. I don't, I don't think that really fits with the numbers I'm looking at. All right, so let's look at C. The firm has spent more on direct labor in March than they did on average in the previous months. Okay, so let's take a look at what direct labor is doing. All right, so direct labor current month, we've got 51,400. Year to date, 145,000. And so they're saying that this should be lower than average, but if we take, so this is a first quarter, right? So this is three months. So say 145,000 and we subtract out the current month, which was 51,400. And then we divide that by two to average out what the previous months were. That's 46,800, which is lower than this number. So that's, you know, something to think about. Um, the firm spent more on direct labor in March than they did on average. That's correct because this, this 50, was that number? The 51,400 is higher than the 46,800. So I like that answer. So I'm gonna highlight that one. I like that as a correct answer. So let's move on to D. The firm is billing more in March than they did on average in the previous months. All right, so let's go look at uh, billing in this month versus previous months. All right, so fees billed, year to date 375, current month 165. So we're gonna do the same kind of thing here. So we know over the past three months, it's been 375. Let's subtract out the current month. And then let's average those two. So 105 was the average, but it's 165 for this month. So it looks like we're billing out more this month than we did in the previous two. So I agree with this, yeah. So firm is billing out more in March than we did on average in the previous months. I like it, that's a good one. All right, so next, consultant costs are lower than anticipated. All right, let's check out consultant costs. So consultant costs are right here. We've got a year-to-date budget of um, paying out 106,250, and they are at 55,000 year-to-date. So that looks like a lot lower than we were expecting. So yeah, I like E as an answer as well. So I've got four here, but let's go ahead and look at F and see what that one's up to. So the firm's total labor cost is higher than expected for the first quarter. So this is talking about like, this only shows us direct labor. Um, it doesn't show us indirect labor and direct labor put together. Um, but what I will say is we know who's employed and if it's the same um, personnel, that it's probably gonna be exactly what was expected as long as no one got raises or anything. And, and to me, this is just sort of like an outlier answer that isn't as strong as the rest of them unless we had information about personnel changes. So I feel really good about just saying, no, I, I feel like that's not that's not really a good question for the information we've been given. So I feel pretty confident in A, C, D, and E being the strongest answers here. Thanks. Yeah, that was great. Um, I, I love um, I love what you said about 
option F there and, and why it's incorrect, I, I think that might trip some people up because total labor is not provided to you, but the reasoning behind that uh, that you gave was was perfect. Also, if you're if you're thinking about it, we're we're saying that we're a new firm and we're starting in a new year and we're reviewing the finances in March. It's highly um, unlikely that there were personnel changes or or raises or anything like that in the first three months of a firm. Um, and the PL statement that we're given specifically shows the same number of employees that we were expecting. Another um, another tip here: if you were provided with this PL statement as part of a case study and you were uh, answering the question about the billable rate for the principal and you were a little confused about what goes into the net operating revenue because that was a variable in that question, you could have peeked out the PL statement and you're you're given the answer right there by um, by by seeing the the various inputs for the net operating revenue. Um, and and you'd realize right there that consultant costs need to be uh, subtracted from fees billed in order to find net operating revenue. Since you're not given any information about reimbursables billed and non-reimbursable project expenses, you, you shouldn't be expected to include that in the net operating revenue. And also, if you look here, those two cancel each other out um, sim simply enough. So just a reminder that if you're specifically in a case study question, if you're tripped up, uh, take just click through the references available and see if uh, you can find some information that'll help you on the question that you might not be expecting. All right, with that one out of the way, let's uh, take it home with question six, and Emily's gonna read this one. All right, the five-person firm is planning for next year's profit plan at the end of the year. The principals made the following observations about their firm's finances during the first year. The principal's utilization rates were higher than expected. The firm's billable rates were generally lower than their competition. The firm gained most of their new clients through RFP responses. Which of the following should the firm consider in order to address these issues? Check the three that apply. I just wanna highlight real quick that the check the three that apply or check the four that apply that Haley just did, um, these are super, super common on the exam um, and they're extra difficult because you might get two out of the three right and then you just don't get the third one and then you miss the whole question. So these are definitely types of questions that it's worth practicing on because um, you will see them throughout the exam. All right, with that being said, let's read through our possible options. We're looking for three of them. A, hire an in-house marketing team. B, hire additional junior staff members. C, increase spending on marketing. D, decrease spending on overhead expenses. E, increase profit goal. F, seek to add a fourth principal to the team. So again, let's just go ahead through everyone. Start with A, hire an in-house marketing team. So it does seem like um, based on the billable rates that the firm might be able to raise those to be closer to um, the competition since right now they're generally lower, which would mean there is some money to work with within their firm. Um, and since most of our new clients were found through RFP responses, it would be nice to focus on having um, like a really nice um, brand um, and like website and anything that people who haven't seen us before are going to be seeing. Um, it would be nice to focus on that in um, like referring to marketing. Um, the only thing that's throwing me off here is an in-house marketing team. Team implies more than one. I'm not sure that in a five-person firm, we would want you know more than one internal marketing person. So I'm not thinking that's the right option. We might come back to it though. 
Next we have B, hire additional junior staff members. So to me, um, this sounds like it's probably a correct option. Um, so right now the principals have high utilization rates and if we hire additional junior staff members that would um, take some of that work off of the principal's plates um, and would allow them to lower their utilization rate so i'm going to say b is a correct option next we have c increase spending on marketing so that's essentially the same conversation i just had about a i do think um, it could be a good idea um, as far as how much we're spending, I'm not quite sure on, so I think just leave this as an option for now and we'll go to D. Decrease spending on overhead expenses. So we know already that our firm's billable rates are lower than the competition. So that tells me that overhead expenses isn't something we need to be overly concerned about. And this is one of those things in real life, I feel like in most cases, you want to reduce your overhead expenses um, because sometimes, you know, if you can just reduce your rent, why would you not reduce your rent? Um, but in this case, we're already lower and we just want to think about only the information that's given in this scenario. Um, so I don't think decreased spending um, on overhead expenses is the right option. Next, we have increase profit goal, option E. Um, so since the firm's billable, billable rates are already lower than the competition, um, they can raise them to match the competition um, and that will bring in more profit for them without pricing themselves out of the market. Um, so I wouldn't see why they couldn't do this. So I think E is a correct answer. They can increase their profit goal. And then F, seek to add a fourth principal to the team. Um, I really can't see a reason why we would do this one at all. We already have three principals on a five-person team um, and their utilization rates are already high and principals tend to have um, the highest hourly rate and the highest billable rate. So I don't think there'd be any benefit to adding another principal. It would be more beneficial to hire those junior staffers that we mentioned earlier. So that leaves us with A, hire an in-house marketing team and C, increase spending and marketing. We can only choose one more in between the two. I think I'd rather go with the little more vague increase spending on marketing option C rather than hiring multiple people to form a marketing team. So the answers are B, C, and E. Yeah, I think when you see a check all that apply question that has choices like A and C, um, oh, oh, just a little tip here is that they're, they're pretty similar options. They're both about increasing your marketing capacity and budget in some way, um, one of them to a greater extent than the other. I think when you see that, you've probably got to think that one of those is going to be correct, and your job is to figure out which one is correct. So um, just a quick tip there before we move into the Q&A portion of the podcast. So We've got quite a few questions in the ARE community. If you've got any more, feel free to drop them in as we're answering these. But I'm going to start it off with a question for Haley. Um, somebody's asking, how do you determine what qualifies and, as indirect labor and what doesn't? So um, maybe you can just go over again where you're pulling the information from indirect for indirect labor from. Yeah, so this is a really good question, and to me, this is sort of a foundational question as to understanding sort of how the breakdown goes. So the idea is that, you know, utilization rates play directly into um, your your total salary that you're receiving for the year, right? And so utilization rate is basically just expressing um, when you're filling out your timesheet what you can bill to your client. 
And so utilization rate is saying that, you know, if I'm working 40 hours a week, this is the percentage of hours that I'm able to bill directly to projects or bill directly to a client. I'm not working on marketing things. I'm not working on, um, you know, responding to non-project related items. This is talking about what portion of your time is spent that you can bill to a client. And if you directly apply that percentage to how much you make in a year, you're going to end up showing what part of your salary is represented by billable hours. And so the whole idea is that, okay, if you're 70% utilized and you make $150,000 in a year, the amount that you are getting in your salary directly billable to a client is the $105,000. And so honestly, the, what makes up the difference between direct labor and indirect labor is purely whether or not the task you are performing is billable to a client. So it's if this is billable to a project because you're in client meetings or you're drafting or you're designing or whatever it is where you are on task that is billable to a client, that is what constitutes direct labor. And so previously, I think this is worth mentioning, <clears throat> When I was looking at um, when I was looking at the administrative assistant um, with a projected salary of $75,000, because this person is an administrative assistant, and it's very unlikely that they will have any work that is billable, unless it unless it said they were working on billable work, we're going to assume that all of this is indirect because none of it is directly billable to a client. So hopefully that makes sense why I put all of that as an indirect expense because it is an indirect portion of um, labor within the within the firm. Yeah, great explanation. Um, a similar question is, what is the difference between indirect expenses and indirect labor? All right, so another good question. So I think I answered sort of the indirect labor part of it. So indirect labor is the portion of people's salaries within the firm that you're not able to bill toward a client. So that has to do specifically with your utilization rate um, and your salary. And so it's basically just applying your utilization rate to your salary and just showing you what portion of your salary isn't directly billable to a client. All right, so that's the first part of it. That's what indirect labor dollars happen to be. Um, indirect uh, expenses are all the things in your firm that you would need to pay for that you can't directly bill to a client. So all of these get get um, taken care of once you figure out your net multiplier, break-even rate, overhead. All of these get absorbed into what you're billing. But what's important to know is that if we're just thinking about purely them as expenses, all of these are indirect expenses because you cannot directly bill them to a client. So you, you have to keep the office open, you have, to, you have to pay your accounting team, you have to pay legal. All of those are expenses, but they're not expenses directly related to a project. So say you were working on a residential project and um, you needed to you needed to bill directly for something reimbursable. That would be some kind of direct expense that you would get reimbursed for um, by the. But you can't reimburse any single one of these as a direct expense to a specific project, which is why they're considered indirect expenses. You have to pay them. You have to keep the lights on. You have to keep things going. But they're not directly billable to a project. Perfect. Thanks so much, Haley. Um, a, another question here, changing gears a little bit. 
someone's asking, can you educate us on percentage of firm ownership and how this affects firm financials? Um, wondering about retirements, dividends, and business structure. And are some, let's see, does the, they're basically asking, does the percentage of ownership affect firm financials? The short answer to that one for the purposes of the ARE is no, um, it doesn't. If you were in, in the real world, if you're calculating dividends that somebody would receive or profit sharing or something like that, then percentage of ownership would come into play there. But when we're talking about the major firm financial documents that, um, that are covered on the ARE and, and sort of going through all of these formulas, percentage of ownership doesn't matter. Um, another part of that question was wondering if the legal structure of the firm affects firm financials. And the answer there, again, is no for the purposes of the ARE. Um, I think a C Corp might be doing things a little bit differently. That's a pretty rare thing for architecture firms to be a C Corp. That's a publicly traded corporation. Um, but I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't connect that with firm financials in any way for the purposes of the exam. But with that said, Emily, do you, do you have um, do you have any thoughts on the best way to sort of for somebody to wrap their head around studying the the different legal structures and and thinking about what structure might make sense for a particular firm? Yeah, the legal structures are honestly just so tough. The Architects Handbook of Professional Practice has um, a nice table. I think it's Table 5.1. Um, that lists all the different legal structures. And I just like to remind people that um, when the exam is created, it has to um, point to the specific resources it uses to create questions. So for the practice management exam, it is the Architects Handbook of Professional Practice. So the, um, the structures, the legal structures that are listed in the table are the ones you're being tested on. Um, and I think it's, not as beneficial to think about, you know, real life, well, there's this other option that's not listed and it's different this way. I would not worry about real life circumstances as much as you think you might need to. And I would really rely on those resources um, that are listed in the ARE 5.0 guidelines, like the Architects Handbook of Professional Practice. Um, but even that table, I think it's helpful to break it down into flashcards of your own like explanation of each different structure. Um, and I think why people get hung up on um, how does it affect the finances is um, we talk about taxes a lot with the different legal structures um, and which ones have um, their, the taxes just passed through income tax and which is passed through the business. Um, so if you can just like label that all out in your own diagrams or your own flashcards and just really know the tax situation for each of those legal structures, I think that will help you. And that's really what you need to know as far as the finance differences for the legal structures. Otherwise, it's more about like personal assets and, and protecting yourself that way. So if you're like a sole proprietor, um, you don't have to fill out any paperwork to get started working, but then your personal assets are not protected. So if you get sued, if there's a claim and you get sued, um, they could try to take your house because you don't have any personal asset protection. So like an alternative is an LLC, um, but that does take paperwork to fill to, um to become an LLC, but then your personal assets are protected. So just knowing about all the different reasons you might pick a legal structure is more important than knowing just about like the different finance situation, which would be the taxes. 
Yeah, that's a great explanation. And I love um, just tying it back to the resources again. That's really important on the PCM exam, on all the exams really, but on the PCM exam in particular. Um, the other thing you mentioned there is flashcards. I think that's super useful. Um, we do have flashcards for all of the business structures that you could consider on our website. And I love the idea of making your own custom cards. Even if we have the card for the specific thing we're talking about, um, you can make a, you could just make your own custom card for the same thing. And it, it um, in writing that out and, and taking notes essentially in flashcard form, it really helps uh, internalize that information. To go back to the scenario that we're talking about here with the three of us starting this firm, there's really not any information in this scenario that would have told us what business structure made the most sense. I mean, we we could have chosen, we could have chosen a limited liability partnership, um, could have chosen an LLC and maybe even an S corp. Um, there would have needed if if we wanted to include a question, what business structure makes the most sense for the three of us, we would have needed to provide some more information about how we prefer to be taxed and and things like that to really be able to ask that question. Um, couple of more financial questions. Uh, here's a quick one for you, Haley. Why are some of the numbers in the PL statement in parentheses and some of them not? I like that question. That's a good one. So let me go down to that statement so we can take a look at it. So traditionally, um, things that are in parentheses are meaning things that are coming out of pocket rather things that are coming back in. So these are these are monies that we are paying out. And so if you look at how this gets added up, 425, 3750, and then um, you would subtract the numbers in parentheses. So the net operating revenue, just as we calculated it previously, is all the revenue we bring in minus our consultants and project expenses. And so if you do the math here, our positive numbers are the ones without parentheses. And if we subtract out the things in parentheses, we get our net operating revenue, which if you'll notice are the consultant costs and the project expenses. So the parentheses are just things that we're paying out rather than things that are coming in. Yeah, I think the I think the reasoning behind that is that it's a lot, if we just put a negative sign there, it's pretty easy to miss a negative sign. It's, it's super small, but if by putting the number in parentheses, you're a lot less likely to add it instead of subtracting it. So I, I actually find it useful. Sometimes you'll see these statements where the negative numbers are also in red, um, but it, it can't just, you can't just rely on color. There's gotta be parentheses or a negative sign or something um, on the ARE. The ARE doesn't have any questions where you would need to rely on color sightedness in order to answer the question. So um, they're either gonna be in parentheses or have a negative sign. Um, let's see, can you, Haley, go over the net multiplier formula one last time? Of course, I'd be happy to. So the, let me find it really quick. Um, all right, so this net multiplier formula is just a little bit different because of how we are, um, how we're coming to it. But, but if we're working backwards, which is kind of what we're doing here, because we know what our total billings were, we know how much principal A makes. And so we're trying to figure out what the what the net multiplier is based on how much profit we made. And so really what this is doing is it's kind of working backwards. So instead of saying, hey, I wanna use the industry standard of three as our net multiplier, we're trying to figure out what our net multiplier actually is um, based on profit and then assigning a billable rate to the principal. Um, so basically what happened here was we're just trying to figure out what our net operating revenue is, which is, you know, 
less our consultants fees, which is a 25%. And so then we can take that number and subtract out all of our um, expenses and get how much money, you know, the bottom line, what the company made at the end of the year. And so then what I did was I took, I took that amount and I divided that by all of the direct labor um, that we had. And because of that, I'm able to get how much per labor hour we were um, making in addition to our break-even rate, all right? So we take our total profit, divide it by our direct labor dollars, and so we get how many dollars per direct labor dollar we are making in profit, okay? And so if we take our overhead rate plus one to account for breaking even, and then we add it with the amount of profit we made per labor hour. So all of these are in terms of per labor hour, right? So this is 1.19 in overhead per labor hour that we have to account for. The direct labor itself, which is one over one, then how much we're making in profit, which is 0.62. And then um, we add all that together and that's gonna be in real terms, what our net multiplier is for every, so that's basically just per direct labor hour, how much we need to multiply by what they're actually making in order to make that amount of profit, right? And so this is kind of working backwards, but it's basically how much principal A, principal A made per hour multiplied by this to get this in order to make that $300,000 work. So I think Wait. the important thing is that everything is in terms of direct labor dollars, which is why these are directly, um, you're able to sum these directly is because everything is in the same terms. Yeah, that's a that's a major key that uh, you, sh you should remember is that all of these um, all of these metrics use direct labor as the denominator. And that makes sense because you're trying to figure out what you need to multiply the hourly rate by um, in order to figure out a billable rate. So um, that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Um, we've got just two more questions here. I know we're over time, but I think we can get to the other two. Um, I'll take the next one. Haley, if you could just slide over to the profit plan um, slide, which I think is the next one, the next page. Oh, we might have lost Haley. Did we lose Haley? We might have. Um, anyway, that, that's, uh, that's fine. Um, the question was, where does the $72 hourly rate come from? And the answer is that uh, that comes from the profit plan uh, that that we provided as a, a resource here. Um, it was in the, the leftmost column and that's common. Yep, right there. And then if you, even if you weren't provided with that number, you could take the total labor and divide that by 2,080. That's a number that you should remember. That's the number of working hours in a year. Um, if you divide 150,000 by 2080, you will get 72 and change, so that rounds to 72. Um, all right, last, we had two questions that were basically about the same thing, asking about if if there's a good example of a PL document that can be studied better, and just in general, what's the best resource to understand these firm financial metrics? I'll I'll start, and then I'll I'll hand it over to Haley and Emily for their recommendations. Um, I think the the primary resource that you could point to is the Architects Handbook of Professional Practice. They've got a sample of the four major firm financial documents that you'll need to to use for the PCM exam. I would say that um, it's it's a little it, it's kind of a lot in there. So um, we've we've broken that down, and I I don't know if uh, some of you probably got an email yesterday that we're releasing some new PCM content. 
um, soon, um, we've broken that those documents down and uh, put them in a more digestible way um, in our new videos that we'll be releasing. And um, so if if you if you want to take a look at those, we're we're working on that to make it a lot more digestible. The other thing is that our virtual workshops um, on Sundays that are taught by Haley and Emily go through all of these firm financial metrics. So if you need that extra push to understand these, those are definitely a good resource. But um, maybe I'll ask Emily, what what did you um I don't know what did you think were were your keys to understanding these for passing the exam, specifically the the financial metrics. Yeah, so like we've both mentioned for practice management, the Arctic's Handbook of Professional Practice is the main and almost the only like resource besides the contracts that they refer to. And the profit loss statements in there are helpful, but they're only helpful to an extent, or at least for me. So um, I needed to see more examples. So um, it'll be great when the videos come out. And I think the workshops are honestly the best place because then you could talk to other people and ask them your very specific questions. But just as like a general thing that I did whenever, you know, it's not Sunday and you can't have those questions answered live, um, just Googling profit loss statement examples. And as far as trying to find something that's reputable, I'd always just look for articles um, or websites that are like banking websites. Um, and there are lots of resources that will break it down in different ways. That's the challenge with the book. It's really, there aren't like multiple examples. So for me, I needed to see multiple examples. So just Googling it and trying to make sure the source you're looking at is reputable. It's something in banking um, or something in architecture, um, like some other kind of architecture forum or resource um, just to see as many examples as possible it just helps you get more comfortable with it um, so that would be my recommendation yeah that's a great one and and like i said earlier i think making your own is is a really good way to truly wrap your head around all this stuff so um, obviously you need a starting point in order to do that so any of the resources that we we all just mentioned um, can teach you about it and then making your own you can internalize it a lot better but when when you do make one you'll you'll figure out really quickly um, where if you made a mistake because the numbers just won't uh, total the way they need to so uh, it's a really powerful thing to try to do um, all right with with that that is all the questions so I think that's it for today uh, just a reminder that our next ARE Live will be on April 20th, and we'll be talking all about sustainable design and how it applies to different divisions, particularly PA, PPD, and PDD. Uh, you can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up, or you can check out the community page for this episode. The lucky winner of the Black Spectacles t-shirt is Jay Simkis, so congratulations, and we'll be reaching out by email shortly with some more information. Finally, if you could please stick around just a few minutes uh, after the broadcast to take our survey and share any suggestions you have for future episodes of ARE Live, we'd really appreciate it. We read them all and we use your feedback to make this podcast as helpful as it can be. Thanks for watching.